Please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Jonah, the third chapter. I'll read chapter 3 in its entirety of the prophet Jonah before we turn to our sermon text this morning, which comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. We begin with the prophet Jonah, the third chapter, after he has been called to go to Nineveh, he ran the other direction, was reclaimed in a dramatic way, as chapter 3 opens. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and withdraw his burning anger, so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. And now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 13. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word, that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we might benefit, we might turn from our own wicked ways and repent. Grant these things, we pray, for your glory, 
and our good. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. North Americans living in this first half of the 21st century enjoy a standard of living unimaginable a century ago. In fact, every day I routinely use tools that I myself didn't have at my disposal when I was a younger man. When I was in my late teens and twenties, I typed my college and seminary papers on something called a typewriter. If it happened to be an exegetical paper I was writing, I had to leave sufficient white space on a typewritten line to write in the Hebrew or Greek words afterward by hand. If I wanted to keep a copy of any correspondence for my records, I used carbon paper. Libraries back then didn't have computers. They had these hundreds of little wooden pull-out drawers of information called card catalogs. If I was on the road somewhere and needed to call home, I had to find not only a public phone booth, I also had to find a quarter so I could use it. Over these last several decades, our daily lives have become, at this level of comfort and convenience anyway, our lives have become incredibly easy. The advantages we have over our parents, over our grandparents, are amazing, at least where the technology of information, ease, and efficiency is concerned. But there's another generational advantage that later generations have over the earlier ones. And that's the advantage of knowing more clearly and perfectly the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are today the most privileged generation of history where the available knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. Now you may think that to be an odd thing for me to say. It seems so counterintuitive. Wouldn't they know him best who were able actually to see him in the flesh, able to hear him, able to handle him back in the days of his earthly ministry? Aren't we instead disadvantaged by the historical and cultural distances between 1st century Judea and 21st century Texas? After all, we have to depend on what we read about him. And that situation probably would seem like a disadvantage if we put any stock in the old saying that seeing is believing. But our gospel passage today suggests otherwise. Our gospel passage today drives home to us the point, in fact, that seeing is not believing. At least not necessarily. The village of Chorazin actually saw the wondrous deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bethsaida saw, and Capernaum certainly saw, up close and personal they did, day and night they did, for all the months and months of his great Galilean ministry. Now the factors that shape our true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings conferred on those who know him These have less to do with the generation in which we live or the people we come from or the place we call home and more to do with what we make of what we know. The Puritans call this practical application of our knowledge of Christ improving the gospel. We might today call it investing ourselves more fully in it. 
and the continental divide that determines which direction the crystal clear rivers of the gospel carry us, whether to heaven or to hell, that watershed issue is the practical response the gospel produces in our hearts and lives. Whether we're Jew or Gentile, Galilean, Tyrian, Sidonian, or Texan. In every generation among all the nations, Christ is looking for the fruit of this good news in the sinner's life. He's looking for the blessed response of repentance and faith. Now by this point in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ is on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. He's already left Galilee behind. On the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum had been, for the better part of a year, his home and headquarters. Right next door to it were the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida. All three of these Galilean towns, along with many more, had been witnesses to the glorious light that briefly shone in the otherwise hopeless gloom of Zebulun and Naphtali. Up there north in Galilee, in their generation, the Son of Righteousness at last had risen with healing in its wings. And over our months together, we've been reading of this rise, haven't we? And of this healing, and of this granting of forgiveness full and free, and even of this raising of the dead, and of every other wonderful work of power that Luke selects from the vast, largely undocumented treasury of eyewitness testimony, to certify that the person and work of this Jesus of Nazareth, in him the Messianic age and the kingdom of God, had arrived. If seeing were, in fact, believing, then certainly words of congratulation, words of unmixed joy and satisfaction would now be pouring from the lips of Jesus because they'd seen. We'd be hearing him say, Well done, thou good and faithful cities. Well done, Chorazin. Well done, Bethsaida. And Capernaum, the brightest jewel in my crown, you were my home away from home. You were my family, my friends, my neighbors, you were my team. You've heard all my words, you've seen all my wonderful works of power, you've experienced it all. How great their advantages, if seeing were believing, then having seen... You believe, and believing, you have life in my name. But of course, that's not at all what we hear him saying here, is it? It's not a benediction he pronounces on the Galilean cities now in his rearview mirror. It's a malediction. It's not a blessing on their warm, well-informed obedience. It is a curse on their stubborn, stony-hearted unbelief that refuses to change, even in the presence of all the undeniable evidence, refuses to turn, refuses to repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's what he says. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, merchant cities along the Mediterranean coast, cities made rich with commerce in goods and the souls of men, Gentile cities, pagan cities, cities that Amos and Isaiah and plenty of other good men by the Spirit denounced for their selling the people of God as slaves into the hands of their enemies. These were cities responsible for the raising of the little girls who grew up to become the murderous Jezebel, her vicious daughter, Athaliah, and many more like them. They'd have repented in sackcloth and ashes had they seen the things you've seen, had they heard the things you've heard. In fact, the great and wicked city Nineveh did repent, didn't they? Back in the days of Jonah, they repented on far less compelling testimony from the lips of a far less worthy ambassador. Nineveh repented. Tyre and Sidon would have too, given the mountain of clear evidence you cities of Galilee have before you. Beloved, we are racing toward the final day, the culmination of human history. That day known only to God, the day of judgment. On that coming day, the court of heaven convenes, books will be opened, and men will be judged by the things infallibly recorded therein. On that day, says Jesus, the last great day, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for those privileged to know the abounding grace and life and power and love of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet stubbornly will not turn, will not yield their hearts and lives, their hopes and dreams and purposes to Him, to His glorious kingdom. We see what He said concerning the cities of Galilee, cities privileged to know Him, only during the few short years of his humble service among men. So what do you suppose he'll say on that day concerning our city of San Antonio in this generation, our generation, who by the infallible scriptures are privileged to know him as the glorious king he is, the Christ of God who's now in these last days crucified, risen, ascended into heaven and reigning over all nations. We're a city actually named for a saint, aren't we? But is San Antonio a city sanctified? Is it a repentant city made holy unto the Lord? Does our city aspire to serve always and only Him? Do repentance from sin and the aspiring toward biblical reformation ever find a place on the city council's agenda? It did in Nineveh. It would have in Tyre and Sidon. 
Lord, stir the hearts of your people. Grant life to the dead and hasten the day it happens here. Here in San Antonio, repentance, reformation. Briefly, then, what are the advantages we enjoy today over these earlier generations? And how is this present generation in terrible danger of squandering them? First of all, unlike so many generations before us, we're in an advantageous position to hear the gospel and yet refuse to do so. This generation of Americans absolutely runs from the sound of it. Ignorance, they suppose, is bliss. So they don't want to know the gospel. They don't want to hear it because I can't be held responsible for what I don't know, can I? And it almost sounds strangely reasonable. But what a surprise it's going to be for hardened sinners. Smug in their willful ignorance of the gospel. What a surprise it's going to be that in the eyes of the righteous judge of all the world, their presumed ignorance is counted against them as willful suppression of the truth that's plainly evident within them and all around them. It's evident. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And in a world now filled with Bibles and pulpits, radio and internet, ignorance of the gospel just isn't an excuse. Ignorance of the gospel actually becomes an aggravation of the offense because you could have known. You should have known. You should have turned from your wicked ways. A second way, this current generation squanders its advantageous position is by hearing the gospel but responding to it poorly. We hear it, but respond to it poorly. Perhaps we disbelieve it. Perhaps we call God a liar and reject the Christ freely offered in it. Or perhaps we delay it, as King Agrippa tried to do when Paul the prisoner preached the gospel to him in Caesarea. You remember the occasion there in Acts, in a short time, said Agrippa, you will persuade me to become a Christian. But of course that time never came. Agrippa delayed the issue of repentance and faith. He put off dealing decisively with gospel facts he knew very well to be true. But there's a third way we respond poorly to the gospel and so risk losing the advantages available to us. Perhaps when we hear this good news, we believe it. Perhaps we respond to it with some urgency, but there's something deficient in our response. We're ready to embrace the good news of God's grace, His mercy, His love. We're certainly ready, as these Galilean cities were, to embrace the healings offered and the liberation from demons and the sweetness of His sermons. 
But there's a deficiency. There's a deficiency if we do not repent. If there's no perceptible change in the direction of our lives, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we vote, the way we spend our time and money, the way we train our children, it's all as if we never believed at all. Too many of the preachers who preach the Lord Jesus Christ as though he were just another ornament to the life that sinners are already living. Their gospel message, if you can call it that, seems to be, your life now is good, but having Jesus in it makes it all that much better. Beloved, listen carefully, because I speak on this king's behalf. Whatever you may think of it, apart from repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life now is not good. It's not good. Apart from union with Christ, it's an offense. Why are sinners awakened to their sin, not sitting every day and night in sackcloth and ashes for our offenses against the Holy One, who is the judge of all the earth? Christ Jesus isn't some bauble, some trinket added on to the life you're already living. He's not that nice young man who lives next door to me in Capernaum. No. When we decisively turn from our sins, hating them, loathing them, and trust in the Lord with all our hearts, this Christ of the gospel moves in with me. He moves in. I yield to him. He becomes the head of my home. So he rearranges the furniture. He throws out all my hoarded junk, my trash, my garbage. He fixes things. He throws open the windows to let in some fresh air. And by the time he's done his work, this house, this life of which he is Lord, it's put in order. It's clean, fragrant, open to those needing a place to stay. That's the repentant Christian life. Repent and believe, dear ones, because no one can serve two masters. Out with the old, in with the new. Well, the importance of this matter is self-evident, I hope. The gospel bears genuine living fruit in the lives only of those soundly converted. But how does this happen? How are we converted? What are the means by which we're challenged to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? In the infinite wisdom of God, it wasn't the Father's role to come and explain these things to us. For that... In the fullness of time, he sent his Son. And in the infinite wisdom of God, the day also came when that Son, having accomplished all that the Father gave him to do, having obtained our eternal redemption, returned again to the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
So here we are. And I say again, what now? How are we in this present generation to be challenged, changed, converted? Christ being seated again upon his throne in heaven, how are God's elect of every passing generation to enjoy the everlasting benediction of the triune God? really not a new question, is it? Christ, in fact, anticipated the continuing need for the instruction of his elect before he ascended into heaven. He anticipated that need by calling disciples and forming the first twelve of them into this traveling school for the preachers of God's kingdom, and then calling more, and training them, and sending them. Soon there were seventy or more heralding the king on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. Before long there'd be a hundred and twenty of them gathered together in Jerusalem, and very soon thousands more. Within that first generation, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, addressed this question of obtaining the blessing and not the curse how we might know the gospel, how we might rightly call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. What he said to them in Rome was this. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? By grace we obtain the blessing, the benediction of Christ, as we respond in faith to those he calls and trains and commissions and sends with the good tidings of peace. In every generation, it was to these 70 others sent before him toward Jerusalem that he said, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Brothers, pray for me. Pray for gospel preachers everywhere because these words of the Lord are terrible words. They are of a terrible weight for me or any mere man to have to bear. That's why the Old Testament prophet's message was sometimes called his burden. That's why the Lord's own brother James warns the likes of us, the likes of me. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. How shall we improve the advantages that are ours by virtue of this good news of Jesus and its availability in our own language, in our own day and age, even here in San Antonio, even to the ends of the earth. Let's not squander these precious advantages. Let's not turn blessings into curses, as did the highly favored cities of Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, 
Beloved, to be close to Jesus by affection isn't necessarily to be in him by faith. Merely to esteem him as the good man he is falls far short of the worship and obedience due him. To call him merely our neighbor doesn't approach the surpassing riches of calling him our savior and friend. Amen.